0: But we've been looking at the, the nature of the body of Christ and spiritual gifts, and, and we've seen these principles that we've kind of drawn out here in our text uh, down through uh, the end of chapter 12. And we've noticed so far the principles of the body of Christ in verses 12 to 13. We looked at the nature of the body of Christ. And then a big passage, verses 14 to 27 we took time to look at the need of the members of the body of Christ. In other words, we're all together in this. And, um, you know, you see that a lot together. We're in this together. You know, if I see that one more time on a billboard, I'm gonna... But anyway, uh, it seems like everybody's together in all the shutdowns, except the politicians. Gee, they're still getting their paycheck. I think maybe what we should have done is shut their payoff on day one and said, when you open everything back up, then we will start to pay you again. I think they would have been a little more efficient in their dealing with things. But anyway, with that being said, um, today we're going to look at verses 28 to 31. And uh, we're going to look at a couple of the the verses here. And so I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I just read verses 28 to 31 for us. And then we'll have a word of prayer and begin our study together. Paul writes in verse 28, Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, plural, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues or languages. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do you all speak with tongues? Do you all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Father, we pray your blessing upon this text to our hearts. I pray that you would open our hearts. Help us to put our thinking caps on this morning as we look at this text together. Pray that you would apply it to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we want to look this morning at the necessity of gifts. Hopefully you have the outline there in front of you or you download it on um, on the uh, app. And uh, hopefully you have it in front of you. But we want to look at this aspect of the necessity of the gifts. Are they needed in the body of church, in the body of Christ? Now, what's interesting is... In the Greek construction here, I have to kind of get this out. It's kind of technical, so be patient with me. But there's something in the original language here. um, They they call it a men, M-E-N, de, D-E, construction. Men, de, construction in the original language. And what it means, basically, to boil it all down, it means that on one hand, you have this. But on the other hand, you have that. And so what Paul is saying here in verses um, 28 through 30, he's saying on one hand, you have these gifts. But on the other hand, what's he say? I'm going to show you a more, what, excellent way. Now, this isn't saying we don't have these gifts. That's not what it's saying. But it's key to understanding the text. The key to making our gifts that God has given us effective in our lives and an effective uh, way of building up the body of Christ rather than tearing it down is what's in verse 31. The more excellent way. That's what we need. That's what the Corinthians needed to be focused on. They were all about the spiritual gifts. They couldn't get enough of them but they lacked something that was more excellent. And so we want to jump back here to verse 28, and we want to look at the placing of the gifts in the church. The placing of the gifts in the church. Look at what it says. It says, and God has what? Appointed. God has appointed. He is the one that places gifts within his church. You mean I don't get a choice? No. You do not. Your spiritual gift is not something you pick out of a basket. It's not like God says, "Oh, which one do you want? Just pick one." No, He is the one that gives us, that appoints to us how we are gifted as an individual. And sometimes you hear Christians complain and why? Well, I wish I would have had that gift. I wish I had that. Well, you know what you're doing? You're complaining to who? You're complaining to God. And, and this is so prevalent in the church today. Churches even have classes on how you can, they can supposedly teach you a spiritual gift. Remember what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is something that the, the Lord gives to us. It's not something we create. It's not something that we can manufacture. It's not a talent or something that we can be taught. It's something that God graciously gives to us. And he is the one that places the gifts in the church. And so be careful the next time you find yourself complaining. It's a sovereign act of the Lord. And so Paul again reminds the Corinthians here of God's sovereign perfect provision in equipping his church. And remember, it's it's unified and yet it's what? Diversified. We're not all clones. It's not that kind of a unity. It's unity through diversity. We saw that in verse 11. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, here in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 12, the apostle doesn't give here an exhaustive list of gifts as we went over that. He just illustrates them. Sometimes he's repeating some. Sometimes he's deleting some. He's adding others. And he basically wants us to get the message that the Lord works in a variety of ways. He calls, equips people to do his work in harmony. In harmony. He continues to stress the same three key points. Sovereignty, unity, and what? Diversity. Sovereignty, unity, diversity. And so he points out here first that God has appointed... It says first prophets, second, or first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now, the first two offices here mentioned, first two giftednesses, apostles and prophets, had basically three responsibilities. And this isn't in your outline, but you can just write it down if you want to. First of all, one of their first responsibilities was to lay the foundation of the church. That's why God gifted them, to lay the foundation of the church. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. We'll look at that later, but it says it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Secondly, not only to lay the foundation of the church, but to receive and declare the revelation of God's word. This was their task. This is what God gifted them to do. And we're going to talk about this a little more. But it says in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 to 28, Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So you had some of these men who were divinely inspired to speak the word of God. And you see that over and over again. Thirdly, they not only laid the foundation of the church, and not only did they receive and declare the revelation of God's word, but they were also tasked with giving confirmation to the word of God that was given. You have to remember, they didn't have a New Testament. It wasn't around yet. So how would they know If somebody's a prophet and they're up saying, oh, thus saith the Lord, how are they supposed to know? Well, it tells us that through signs and wonders and miracles, these apostles and prophets were verified because there was no New Testament. How do we know that they were actually speaking the word of God? And we're going to go into that a little later so that was their three goals, to lay the foundation of the church, receive and declare the revelation of the word of God, and then also to give confirmation of that word through signs and miracles. So let's look at the importance of certain gifts. The importance of certain gifts. He says here that these were appointed by God, and God has appointed in the church. And then he says this, he begins to list an order. First, it's pretty clear, he's saying, number one, apostles, apostles. Right away, under that point, you see the importance of certain gifts. He's saying that certain gifts are above other gifts. Apostles, prophets, and then third, teachers. There's an importance to these certain gifts. And so we're going to take each one of these gifts today, and this is basically all we're going to get through is these three gifts, and we're going to understand how this all works, how it all functions together in the body of Christ for the glory of God. Well, let's start with the apostles. Think about it. Why are they so important? Why are they mentioned first? Why aren't teachers mentioned first? Why isn't prophets? Why aren't they mentioned first? Why does he mention Apostles first. Let's look at what God did in laying out the whole matter of gifts and how the body of Christ, the church, should work together. The apostles are first. Why? A lot of people say, and and I even said this on occasion, that we don't have apostles today. Um, Technically, that's incorrect. We do have apostles. We don't have the office Apostle. We're going to talk about that. But we do have apostles. Now, to understand what I'm talking about, the word apostle is simply an English word from a Greek word. Apostolos in the Greek. They didn't translate it. They said, we don't know what this call it. We'll just call it apostle. Same like baptizo. Remember, I said they didn't translate that. What do we call baptizo? Baptize. Okay, it's the same thing. But that Greek word, apostolos, is, is made up of two words. Stello, which means to send. Okay, stello. And apo, which means um, to bring someone from this place over to this place, kind of on a mission. Someone being sent from someone to someone else on a mission. What's interesting, when you get to the Greek or the Latin language, they translate this this word misto. And guess what word we get from miso? Missionary. Interesting. See, I believe the reason why apostles are mentioned as first God did this in establishing his churches for the planting of churches. That's what apostles did. Now there's a lot of different forms of the word in the New Testament. It's used over it's used roughly around 218 times. So it's not a little subject. It's a pretty vast subject if you do a word study on it. As a matter of fact, I found out that even Jesus is called an apostle. Did you know that? I mean, he's the kind of chief apostle. He's the one who was sent on a mission, right? From where? From heaven. The Bible says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Over and over again, he said that who sent him? The Father sent me. So he's kind of the ultimate apostle. And one of the descriptions of the gospel, titles of Jesus Christ is what? Sent one, right? So you get the word apostle. He was sent on a special mission, obviously. Now turn over to Acts chapter 14. Just back a couple pages, Acts 14. And we're just going to spend a little time here because this is all setting... A foundation for you as we begin to look more in depth at these different gifts. If we don't set the foundation and we just give you a cursory view of, oh, this gift means that and this gift means that, you're not going to have any reference point and you're going to be confused. So if you look at Acts 14, um, we're going to take a look at the use of apostles in the planting of the New Testament church. Now, What's going on here in Acts 14 is basically what we call the missionary journeys of Paul. The missionary journeys of Paul. According to Acts chapter 13 verses 1 to 4, the church of Antioch had five leaders in it. Two of them were Barnabas and Saul or Paul. His word by the his name by the by the way means little one. <laughs> That's why they believe Paul was probably short. And so they're going to go on a missionary journey. They're going to go out. And it's very interesting what it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 4. Look at what it says. But the people of the city, the city's Iconium, it's a central city in Turkey. We actually were there when we, 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 we drove by that city when we were in Turkey with David Hawking several years ago. It says, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews. That's one group. And some sided with who? What's it say? The apostles. So, Paul and Barnabas clearly were apostles. That was their giftedness, that's what they did. You had the Jews and you had the apostles. Now, we're going to share a little bit about the 12 apostles and where they fit in and all that in a a few moments. But look all the way down there at verse 21. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. Look at what it says. It says, And when they had preached the gospel, who? Paul and Barnabas. That Greek word for gospel there is the word we get evangelized from. Tell the good news. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, get down to verse 23. Here's what it says. And when they had, what's it say? Appointed, what? Elders. Notice it's plural. They didn't appoint one elder. They appointed elders. It says, when they appointed elders for them in every church, singular. What's it saying? One church has many elders. That's the biblical model. The idea that you have some CEO as a pastor and he runs everything, that's not biblical. The church is run by elders. Who are appointed. They're not even voted on. A lot of churches, they'll vote on their elders. That's not biblical. The elders are to be appointed. Now, the congregation hopefully should confirm their appointment. (laughs) In other words, you don't want to appoint people to, to be an elder and somebody in the congregation has an idea of, well, they're appointing that guy. Man, that guy rips off everybody. What are they doing? Well, then you need to come and tell us. That's why when we appoint elders here, we have a time where we select elders. Their name is out there for quite a while, a couple months. So anybody can come and say, oh, you know what? I got a concern here with this person being appointed as an elder. Because it's a a qualified position. So it says that they appointed elders for them in every Church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Who did this? Paul and Barnabas. What were Paul and Barnabas? They were apostles. What do apostles do? They plant churches. They are there for the initial presentation of the gospel. And when they see people come to Christ... What do they do? They take those people and they form a little nucleus, a discipleship group, and they begin to disciple them. And then they say, well, you know what? Here, basically, we got a church here, so let's select some elders. And the apostles selected the elders. And then guess what they did? They left. (laughs) How long was Paul in Corinth? Remember, 18 months. He wasn't there for 22 years. He was there for 18 months. See, when, you, when someone is gifted as an apostle, they're all about church planting. They just can't get away from it. That's all they do. And they'll go to a city where there's no church. And they're excited and they roll their sleeves up and they start to witness. People come to Christ, they start a church, they appoint some elders and they say, see you later. <laughs> and the people are going, wait a minute, aren't you our pastor? See, that's, the, that's, the, that's kind of the model that we have modeled for us in the modern day church but see if you're gifted as an apostle you're not interested in pastoring a church what are you interested in doing you're interested in getting this church established and then what are you going to do you're going to move on you're going to go find another church start another church in another city that's what you're going to do and so that's what these apostles did they want to move on and they want to do it again and again and again. And you need people like that within the body of Christ. Amen? I mean, some people look at that, the idea of starting a church. Like, I don't know. Just a lot to think about there. You don't even have any people. You don't have a building. You don't have any, any infrastructure. You have nothing. You got to start from scratch. You got to get the thing from the city. You got to get the tax thing. You got, there's a lot of work that went on when this church was established that we just take for granted. I would say the founders of this church were apostles. They were interested in establishing a church. That's why they're listed what? First. See, you you, you can't have a teacher if you don't have a church. Right? I mean, you've you got to have some place to teach. And the, it's the apostles who are called to go out and plant churches. That's why they're listed first. Now, some people, some commentators, I found out this past week as I was reading through a bunch of different commentaries on this. Some people ask the, the question, well, maybe this means the first 12 apostles. Maybe that's what they're talking about. They're first. It's not really talking about. Well, that's a difficult question, but let's see if, what we can deal with that. There are 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. We know that. There's no more than that, that hold the office of apostle. Now, a lot of people teach different things on this, so you know, hold on. We know there's only 12 because in the future, in the book of Revelation, it tells us, we'll get to that, but it tells us that they're their names are inscribed on the, the foundation stones of the heavenly city, the 12 apostles. So we know that it's limited to 12. So God's going to honor those 12 apostles in the future. Now, a lot of people believe that because Judas took his life, he committed suicide after that whole debacle. And then in Acts chapter 1, what'd they have to do? They had to replace him, right? And so what'd they do? Remember? They cast lots, kind of like rolling dice. You're thinking, wow, that's kind of weird. Wow, well, that's what they did back then, and God worked through that. That was just a, a method that God worked through. And they wanted to see, okay, got it down to a couple guys here. Who, who, who do you want, Lord? Let's just cast lots. So guess what? It says the lot fat of fell on. They chose Matthias. They believed that when people look at this, some of the commentaries say, well, Matthias wasn't really one of the 12. <laughs> because he was kind of selected illegitimate. I mean, think about it. They're kind of gambling. <laughs> Is that even right? Could God use that? I don't think so. So, what do they do? They look at the rest of the New Testament and they say, you know, Matthias wasn't really the 12th apostle. Guess who was the 12th apostle? Paul. Paul was the 12th apostle. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Not so fast. The Bible is already clear that Matthias was the twelfth apostle. We're going to show that to you. Paul was not, listen, Paul was not one of the twelve. He wasn't. Now, he was an apostle. Don't get me wrong. But he wasn't one of the twelve. In Acts chapter 1, they have to make this decision to select somebody to replace Judah. There was two of them meeting the qualifications. You turn over to Acts 1. but Look at verse 23. And they put forward two. It came down to two. And they said, okay, we don't know which one to choose. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Verse 24. And they prayed and they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all. That's a scary thought, isn't it? (laughs) He He knows the hearts of everything, man. Show which one of these... These two you have chosen. So, once again, it's the sovereignty of God here to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. Verse 26 And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was, what's it say? He was numbered with the eleven. So, if you do your math right, eleven plus one equals what? Twelve. That's the twelve apostles. He's the twelfth one. Now, if you want to confirm that, if you say that's all you got, no. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Acts 2, verse 14. It says, but Peter, what? Standing with the eleven. Oh. So Peter eleven well that 's twelve, lifted his voice and addressed them, in other words, the Holy Spirit already included Matthias as the twelfth apostle, and guess what saul isn 't even saved yet he 's not even saved yet he 's still out killing Christians, you know so I mean, go figure so the twelfth apostle to replace Judas was matthias not. Paul. Now, as we go down this road, it presents us with another problem. That's why I said put on your thinking caps. We have the 12 apostles, right? But guess what? When we read in the New Testament, there's other apostles. Uh, some churches even today believe that apostles succeed themselves. There's a lot of churches uh, that they call an Episcopal type of government. Um, they believe that they're an extension of the 12 apostles. That's not correct, if you're wondering. Where is he going with this? That's not correct. There's no extension of the 12 apostles. There's only 12 original apostles that held the office of apostle in the New Testament church. And the qualifications for that apostleship were having been chosen directly by Christ himself, and then also having witnessed the resurrected Christ. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 13 says, And when they went up on the mountain, he called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. Speaking of the apostles, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, it says, uh, Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, Verse 22, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection, and they put forward two. And so you see there, we just read that, but I didn't read the first part, where they had to be a witness of his resurrection. Now, some say Paul was the last to meet those qualifications. We're going to deal with that in a minute. So it's not possible for anyone to witness... The resurrection of Christ today, is it? It's already happened. Okay? It's not possible for Christ to choose another one who was a witness to his resurrection. It's not going to happen today. Those people are dead and gone. So that's why the office of apostle is no longer observed today. Some people say, well, it's kind of like, you know, when you have a, a big convention. You know, like the, the you think of the the Constitutional Convention. You know, they had certain um, delegates and all that stuff. All these people can. But when the convention was over, guess what? The position was gone. There's no need for it anymore. When the New Testament was completed, the office of apostle, the office of apostle, ceased. Not the gifting of apostle. Two different things. And it tells us so. In Revelation 21, 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So there's no more than twelve. Now, other than the twelve in the New Testament, there's people who have the giftedness of apostle. God gives them with that Uh, desire to plant churches, and and that's why they're first, because they plant the church. But there's other people, not only just Paul and Barnabas, which we already said. This may shock you. Timothy and Titus were apostles. You say, wait a minute. Weren't they pastors? They weren't pastors. They weren't pastors. Look in your Bible. It says pastoral epistles, right? They were apostles. They were always they're always referred to as the pastoral epistles. They've been taught that for years, but they weren't. They were apostles. They weren't pastors. If you read the letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, first, the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, the apostle Timothy, and one letter to Titus, if you read those, you can tell what they were doing. They weren't necessarily pastoring churches. What were they doing? They were planting churches. They were planting churches. Paul instructed them to go out to win people to Christ and what? To appoint elders in every church. And then guess what? Move on and move to somewhere else and do the same thing over and over again. That's what they were called to do. They were, think of it this way, they were in charge of districts or areas. For example, we know that Titus his area of responsibility was the island of Crete. He was responsible for that island. Now, in addition to Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Titus, who were all listed as apostles, we also have Andronicus and Junius. There were also apostles. And this was before Paul was ever even there. Okay, he wasn't the apostle, an apostle yet. You also have Epaphroditus. In Philippians, he was, if you read the book of Philippians, you hear about Epaphroditus and you realize that what he was very instrumental in the working of this church. You also have another individual, James, who's the brother of our Lord, by the way. He was the first leader in the church of Jerusalem. He wrote, guess what, the book of James. He was called an apostle. You say, where is he called an apostle? Galatians 1.19. Galatians 1.19. He says, But I saw none of the other apostles, Paul writes, except, guess who? James, the brother of our Lord. So James is listed by Paul as an apostle. Now, what are we to do with all these other guys called apostles who are not part of the original twelve? Turn over to Ephesians made reference to this verse, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. All right? Everybody okay? Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 19. Ephesians 2 verse 19. Paul writes there, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What a wonderful thing to be. Built on the foundation of what? Of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now he talks about the the church being a structure, being joined together. Rose into a holy temple in the Lord. And you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Speaking of the church of Christ. Now look down at chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Because Paul, here in chapter 3, he begins to talk about this mystery. This mystery of the church. How can this happen? And he says in verse 3... How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to who? Oh, it says his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Well, what's this mystery? Verse 6 tells us this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago? The mystery isn't, well, how are the Jews going to get into the church? That's not the mystery. The mystery is the Jews who were part of the church were going, how are we going to get these Gentiles into the church? That's the mystery because of their pagan background. How are they going to become partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel? But he calls them their holy apostles and prophets. His holy apostles and prophets. Now, what's interesting, in the original language, that phrase, holy apostles and prophets, his holy apostles and prophets, the holy apostles and prophets, there's a rule in the original language. It's called the Granville Sharp rule. Sounds kind of weird, right? Granville Sharp. It's a rule in the Greek grammar And it's used over 256 times in the Greek New Testament. There's no exceptions. That's why it's a rule. There's just no exception. You say, well, what's the rule? The rule is this. The rule says that when two nouns are connected by and, A-N-D, which has a definite article, the, in front of the first one, but not the second one. And you have two nouns connected by and, the, dog, and cat. This Granville Sharp rule kicks in. And what it does, it basically says that those two nouns are equal. So what's he saying? The holy apostles and prophets... It's saying apostles and prophets are equal. How are they equal? Are apostles the same as prophets? Well, in some sense, apparently they are. Or God in his inspired text wouldn't have included that rule to make them so. I know this is kind of down in the weeds, but it's good for you to understand this. Well, how are they the same? They are the same in the sense of what they do when it comes to the foundation of the church. The foundation of receiving revelation, new revelation about the body of Christ. And how it functions and how it's to work. We know... They're revelations because God has put them in what? The Holy Scriptures. In the New Testament. You read through some of these epistles. You see how the church works. And, well, who wrote all this down? The apostles and the prophets, who were directly inspired by God Himself. That makes up our New Testament, basically. That makes up, they didn't have a New Testament. So these apostles and prophets were gifted by God to do just that. These holy apostles and prophets. Doesn't mean they were without sin. Holy basically means they were set apart from the others. So it's specifically talking about the twelve. Well, what did he separate them to do? To give us the revelation which is now in the New Testament about which the body of Christ is all about. So God gave them direct revelation, which is now the Bible, the inspired scriptures. That's why the text says, back to 1 Corinthians twelve, 28, first, apostles, because you have to have a foundation, you have to have churches, they laid the church, then what? Prophets. That's why he said that. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So first you have the apostles, then you have prophets. Well, let's talk about prophets. We talked about apostles. Let's talk about prophets. This word is used some 180 times throughout the New Testament. Now, if I were to ask you or you were to ask the common person on the street, what's a prophet? What would they tell you? Someone who looks into the future and can tell you what's going on, right? I mean, you're coming up on the end of the year. You know, you go through the supermarket line at the end of the year. What do you see? You know, all the prophecies concerning the next year. You know, all these, quote, people that have an inside uh, look at what's going to happen in 2021. People that can tell the future. And it cracks you up because whenever you read any of those trashy magazines about these prophetic people, sometimes in the article to say, you know, and she's 75% correct. Or he's 80% correct. Well, guess what? According to the Bible, if you're not 100% correct in your prophecies, you're what? A false prophet. Who, by the way, would be cause for death. Wasn't something to be trifled with. But most people in the street just think, well, it's somebody that tells the future. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. That's not what the Bible's talking about here at all. Let's get back to this word, prophet. It's one of the most common words used in the Greek language. It's used throughout, it was used throughout the New Testament world in everyday society. Prophet. It's made up of two Greek words. Femi, to speak. Femi. And pro, which means to go beforehand or more commonly to go before a group of people. So the normal way it's being used is to speak before a crowd of individuals. That's what that word means. It was used of emissaries who would go before the population of a city or a town on behalf of the mayor or on behalf of the council. And they would say, here, go read this to the people out there gathered. And they'd say, okay. And he'd stand up and he'd read, thus is the mayor, blah, blah, blah. He was a prophet. A prophet wasn't up there coming up with something new. Well, let me tell you, I think my plan for the city, no. A prophet only did, only said what he was instructed to say. It wasn't something new. They were delivering an official message, which usually was to be read or presented before a group of people. In the Old Testament, you think of Aaron and Moses. Think of that, right? Because Moses fell under God's judgment. He couldn't speak, remember? He wasn't allowed to talk. And who had to talk for him? His brother Aaron right so they go before pharaoh and you know Aaron turns to Moses what okay god said this Aaron wasn't knowing what god said Moses was communicating it to his brother Aaron and then Aaron was communicating it to Pharaoh he did it on his brother's behalf but Aaron was a prophet but he never came up with any anything original at all see there are prophets in the new testament there were prophets in the church of antioch Acts 13, 1. There were prophets in the church of Corinth. We're going to come to that in in chapter 14, verse 29. Some of them were Agabus, Judas, Silas. They're all called prophets in the New Testament. Most of the prophets of the Bible, when God told them what to write, listen, they had no idea what they were writing, they had no idea. They were just under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were taken along by the Holy Spirit, and they began to write out the very words of God. They didn't think about it. Probably if they thought about it, they wouldn't have written it because some of it probably didn't make any sense to them. I mean, as a matter of fact, when you think about it, God told them to write about nations that weren't even around yet. They weren't even established yet. Think about that. Okay, God, you want me to write this down? What is this? What? What? They did it by faith. God worked through them. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to write down a nation that is going to come into existence that you never heard about in your entire life? you think, boy, people are going to think I'm a fool. But you know what? They just said, whatever you say, God, we're going to faithfully do this. But you understand that they were what? They were just emissaries to proclaim God's word. They weren't coming up with God's word. That's why this book is inspired. It's inspired by God, even though it was written by a bunch of human guys. They simply proclaimed the message. They never came up with anything new. When the term apostles and prophets are used together, and when they're speaking of the foundation of the church, The revelation about the church, that's another issue. That's the office of an apostle. They got to do that. And so, these guys were basically apostles because they were speaking on somebody else's behalf. As a matter of fact, Judas and Silas in Acts 15, if you read through that, we're not going to take time this morning. But they delivered a message on behalf of the Council of Jerusalem to the churches. And they wanted to encourage the churches. They didn't come up with anything new. They just went to the council, and the council said, here, go read this to the churches. And they said, sure. They're called a prophet. God selected certain men who, of course, wrote the New Testament. The issue is the word of God was confirmed by these men. But how would you know (laughs) if they were speaking on behalf of God or not? How could you possibly know? It'd be like if somebody came in here and says, Thus saith the Lord. How do you know? When the New Testament, they didn't even have a, their Bible, they didn't have what we would call the New Testament. That's a good question to ask, isn't it? If you're back in that first century, you don't have the New Testament, you have the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, the first 22 Hebrew books. 39 in our English Bibles. But you don't know whether these men are telling you the truth or not. They're just standing before you saying, Okay, yeah, I'm a prophet. I'm going to tell you this stuff. God divinely told me this. How are you supposed to know what is from God and what isn't? A lot of people don't talk about this in churches. Matter of fact, the first book of the New Testament wasn't even written for almost 20 years after Jesus was here. So they had nothing to go by. It's about 40 years from 50 to around 90, 95 A.D. until the New Testament was completed. Think about that. I mean, we take it for granted, this book, don't we? Oh, we got the Bible. Think what it would be like without it. Maybe that'll motivate you to spend a little more time in it this next week. But how do you know that this information should all be put down, should be written, should be accepted, that we accept as the Word of God? How do we know that? It's a very important thing. There's other people that want their books to be included. You know, you have writings of the Krishna's, you know, their new revelation, you have the writings of, of the Mormons, Joseph Smith. They want to include theirs as as inspired writings. How do they know that all this stuff about a church, how it would operate, how do they know it was coming from God? Well, take your Bibles and turn over to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Now, when you read this text of Scripture, you're going to find there's usually a footnote there, and it says this isn't in all the text, and that's fine because we're going to go to somewhere else too. But in Acts chapter 16, it says some of the earliest or Mark, Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter 16, thank you. Some of the earliest manuscripts manuscripts do not include this text. That's fine. And some believe there's good reason for that, but let's just read it. Let's pick up in verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. Who? Lord. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago, that's why, personally, I believe that according to John 21, when Jesus breathed on them, that's when they were really born again. That's when they really became believers after the resurrection. On the night of the resurrection, Jesus had to, what, he rebuked them for their unbelief. Verse 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Look at what it says in verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues or new languages. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoke to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And when they went out and they preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and, oh, look at what it says, confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So how do we know these men got it right? How do we know they were coming up with this new revelation from God? How do we know it was from God? Because God sovereignly ordained certain of these individuals to be gifted with supernatural giftedness, signs. And you know what? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, the Jews demand a sign. So God had a purpose in doing this. Even over in Hebrews, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This was written to Hebrews. Jews come to Christ. It says in verse 2, Therefore we must pay much closer attention, Hebrews 2, 2, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and it was, in every transgression of or disobedience, received a just retribution, and it did, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? then look at what it says. It was declared at first, here we go with this order thing again, by the Lord, and was attested to, or the word is confirmed, to us, who's that? The writers and the hearers of the book, by those who heard. So how do you know that They're telling the truth. How do you know that these men who wrote the New Testament were from God? The answer is that there were signs that would accompany them as they spoke. It validated what they were saying. So that people would know that these men are truly from God. Miraculous signs occurred. That's what the Bible says. Who had those signs accompany their message? Look at verse 4. Those that first heard Jesus and the rest of them heard them. Now look at verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See, that tells us a great deal about apostles and prophets. They were the first and second in the list back in... In 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight, why? Apostles for the planting of the church, prophets for the preaching of the revealed word. Certain one of those apostles are called holy, that select group of 12 that was given the revelation of God about the church. And so the, the body of Christ is given the New Testament books Because of God's work through these apostles and prophets. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to look at the third in our list. We have apostles. We have prophets. But we also have teachers. We also have teachers. And this is really for the progress of the church. For the progress of the church. You have the apostles for the planting, you have the prophets for the preaching of the word, and you have the teachers for the progress of the church. Um, These are different uh, words here. When you look at this, it says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 7 to 11 says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts. These aren't charismatic gifts. The word is doma, the thing that was given to men. In verse 11, it says, and he gave, what? The apostles, the prophets, he concludes another one, the evangelists. And then he says, the shepherds, or pastors, and Teachers in Ephesians 4, verse 11. Once again, when it says shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers, guess what rule applies? The Granville Sharp rule. It means they're one and the same. They're one and the same. Two nouns connected by and, with the definite article in front of the first, but not the second, connects the two equally. That's why if you're asking me, what is your role within the church? I would say I'm a pastor teacher. That would be my primary giftedness. Well, why are you gifted? Verse 12 in there, Ephesians 4. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I mean, this is a good question. It's not a self-serving question. It's a good question for a church to ask. Why do we have a pastor? What's this guy do? What's his role? I mean, we hear him on Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night. What's he do? Pastors are supposedly supposed to equip all of us for the work of the ministry. Why? So you can use your giftedness. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ. That's the goal. That's the role of a pastor teacher. So what happens if you have a pastor who's doing the work of all the people, but he's not doing the work of a pastor teacher, what happens? The body's neglected from being equipped. The body's not being taught. Why? Because the way you equip people is with what? The teaching of this book. See, are the dots beginning to connect now? You wonder why so many churches today are struggling struggling maybe not numerically but they're struggling spiritually for sure we have pastors to equip the body through the teaching of the word of god and guess what when you stand up and you teach the word of god you're not just shooting from the hip i hope i mean i don't want to fall under that judgment so guess what you got to study You've got to spend time with the text. You've got to understand things. You've got to read books. You've got to do all those things in order to be able to get up and authoritatively speak the truth that we have before us. So what's happening in our culture today in churches all over this country and really around the world is many pastors are drained of that responsibility they're, they're pulled away from that responsibility of pastor-teacher. And basically, it's done by churches who believe that their pastors are supposed to do the work of the members. It's not my role. It's not what i have called to do. Matter of fact, that will hurt a church. The pastor is not to do everything if he's called to be a pastor-teacher. His primary responsibility, his primary task, his primary role within the body of Christ is to teach the Word of God so the people are equipped for the work of the ministry. I remember when I first came to this church 22 years ago. I was previously a youth pastor. So I had a real burden for young people. We had some high schoolers and junior high kids in the, in the church at the time. And I thought, well, we gotta do something with these kids. We gotta minister to them. My wife and I started to do some stuff, young people. And it's just God tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, Why do you think I called you to this church? You think I called you to this church to be a youth pastor? Not that there's anything wrong with a youth pastor. I thought I'd always be a youth pastor. But that's not why I called you here. I called you here for a different purpose. You're here to play a different role. I called you here to be a pastor, teacher. And if I would have given in to that urge, <laughs> which it was, and I struggled with it for about the first year, to be honest. felt pulled in a million different directions. And it, over time, and with maturity set in, and good wisdom from the elders, it's kind of like it settled in. I, I settled into what God had called me here to do. If I would have given in to that urge, guess what? I may have had a great little youth group I was pastoring, but the church would have been in trouble because I probably wouldn't have had the time to spend in studying the word of God and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. See, my role is not to go out and visit everyone every month or every week. That's not my role. I mean, it's not that I don't like people. It's, It's not that. It's just that I understand my role to understand what God wants me to teach. I can't teach this unless I understand it. It's going to be a train wreck. Sometimes it's still a train wreck, but go figure. See, my role is not to serve in Sunday school. That's not my role. There's not that that's, you know, not as good as teaching. or It's not that at all. It's just that's not what God has gifted me as. Just like God has not called me to go over every Sunday and serve in the kitchen with those of you who help out with the fellowship. God hasn't called me to come early on communion Sunday and set everything up and, and be involved with the team that does that. God hasn't called me to be overly involved in the finances of this church. No, we have a finance team that does that. See, we need to understand what our calling is and how God wants to use us. My role here as pastor-teacher is to teach and to preach the Word of God so that the church will benefit as the body of Christ and will be equipped for the work of the ministry that God has called you to do. And I'm not about to forfeit that responsibility before God because that's where the responsibility lies. And I'm not about to rob the entire congregation of being taught and equipped with the Word of God each Sunday or each Wednesday night because I'm just over here too busy with something else. Unfortunately, today many pastors are involved more so with trying to relate to the, the current generation or they're trying to relate to be culturally relevant or they're more concerned about the local school system or whatever it might be. Now, all those are good things. But if it interferes with their teaching, their congregations, the very word of God, they're, they're in a world of hurt. We can all get involved in many activities, most of which are good. They're wholesome activities. They probably help other people. But you have to go back and you have to ask this question. Is that what God has called you, and is that what God has equipped you to do? If not, then you need to make a decision. That's why today we have many churches whose pastors are delivering these little talks... (laughs) little sermonettes for christianettes and you know hey just five minutes let me tell you you know that's not that's not teaching the word of god that's not teaching the word of god some people ask why do you teach so much because that's what i'm gifted to do that's what god has called me to do it's very simple I want people to understand. I want people to comprehend. I want people to study and research the scriptures. I want people to understand theology. What is theology? Theology is the study of God. I mean, I've, I've been in pastoral meetings with other pastors. They'll say, "What are you teaching on?" You know, I say, "Oh, you know, First Corinthians." You know, weren't you in First Corinthians last year? Well, yeah, we've actually been in First Corinthians for about three years. <laughs> Whatever. Wow. Don't the people get bored? I don't know. I don't really care. I'm not there to entertain them. I know I'm not getting bored. I'm learning new stuff every week. Well, what are you, what are you teaching on? Oh, we teach a lot of theology. You teach theology in your Church. Why would you teach theology? Theology divides people. Exactly. See, you have churches that are coming to Sunday morning service for something to eat and there's nothing. It's like eating tofu. There's nothing there. I'm not a big fan of tofu. I want some meat. I mean, I've had tofu. It's all right, you know, but it's just, you have to do so much to it to even let it make it taste like anything. See, some pastors don't want to get into all that theological stuff, it's too controversial. Hello? It's so important the importance of certain gifts. First, apostles for the planting of the church. Second, prophets for the preaching of the word. Third, teachers or pastor teachers for the progress of the church. Make sense? We're going to look at the rest next week. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would enable us to continue to understand your word as only um, we can through your assistance. Lord, I pray this morning specifically... Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for how you have gifted this body in different ways. And Father, there's so many people that are involved. They're exercising their gift. And whether it's in Sunday school or the fellowship or the finance team or the missions, Lord, there's just different ways in which people are using their giftedness for your glory. And Father, we all don't do it the same way. That that brings a diversity. But within that diversity, we have unity. And so, Lord, we thank you Even though we're a small church, we thank you that we are a church that wants to be counted as faithful. And Father, we pray that you would just um, allow that message to ring true in our own hearts. And Father, for those who may be here who maybe aren't utilizing their spiritual giftedness, I pray that you would give them wisdom, give them discernment as how to get involved and, and to roll up their sleeves and to begin to use the gift that you gave them for your glory. And Father, we pray that if there's any listening who is not part of the body of Christ, they haven't come to faith in Christ yet, they haven't come before you as a broken, sinful individual and cried out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. They haven't submitted to you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would draw them in a way that they've never been drawn before. Lord, that somehow that you would communicate to their heart the necessity of coming to Christ. All eternity weighs in the balance. Father, we know we could never do enough to earn our salvation. Some of us have come out of churches that have taught us just that. we we'll just do more, do more. It doesn't work. It's a dead end. What a gracious thing it is for a God who loves us so much that provided a way for us. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth and lived some 30 years on this earth in perfect obedience to the Father without stain or sin, and yet willingly went to the cross and died. A cruel death, but a death that was of necessity to secure our salvation. We can't die for ourselves because we're sinful beings. It was only Christ who could come and take on the body of a human being and go to a cross and die and become the sacrificial lamb of God. So if you haven't trusted Christ, I pray, I would instruct you just to look to Christ. Look to Christ and be saved. Pray, bless our fellowship time across the way. Bless our upcoming week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Let's.